people, how he loved people, how he healed people. And they loved Jesus. And they would talk about Jesus as the nicest and kindest person ever. And I remember as we started to keep reading through, all of a sudden it occurred to me, we're about to get to the cross. And these little girls, these little three, four-year-old girls, have no idea that Jesus gets killed. And I was like, this is going to be shocking, shocking for them. I mean, imagine a kid who believes in Santa, and you're like, well, one other little thing you should know about Santa, he had some elves that were a little, a little bit unruly, a little unhappy, and they killed him. We'd be like, what? That's Santa? No. What's well, kind of like what it was like to say like, hey, you know Jesus who loved little children and helped everybody? By the way, he got murdered. He got killed. I remember the, the shock of when Lilia first heard this. Who would kill Jesus? Why would they kill Jesus? And the sadness in her heart is we began to read through the Jesus Storybook Bible where they began to read about Jesus' trial, Jesus' betrayal, Jesus' suffering, and ultimately Jesus' crucifixion. Now, thankfully, I was able to say, it doesn't end there, it doesn't end there. And I kept reading for her. But, you know, when we think about the cross, I wonder if sometimes the shock of it has worn off. You know, we see the cross everywhere. We see crucifixes everywhere. And it's like, you know, this Friday is Good Friday. And it's like, yeah, we, we pause and, and we remember. But is there a way that we can sort of recapture that shock that a child has of why would they kill Jesus? Of anybody to kill, why him? So this morning we're in Mark chapter 15. And what we're going to look at is the hours leading up to the cross and the cross itself. And what we're going to see, and the way we're going to frame the talk this morning is this, that in these hours, we're going to see that Jesus is rejected three times, and he's accepted three times. He's rejected three times, and he's accepted three times. That's how we're going to frame our talk as we move through it. But first, we're going to look at the times that Jesus was rejected. Okay, number one, Jesus, in Mark chapter 15, was rejected by the Sanhedrin. Now, who are the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin are the Supreme Jewish Legislative and Judicial Council. When there was a trial, the Sanhedrin were the, they were the prosecutor, the jury, and the judge, all of them. And the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 different people. They were made up of former high priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, doctors of the law, representatives of prominent families, and the high priest. And the high priest on this day was a man named Caiaphas. Now, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's dragged off to this trial in the middle of the night. And here's what you need to know about this trial, first off. It is a through-and-through farce. I mean, it's a travesty of justice, this trial, and it's actually a bit of a comedic disaster. Because at the end of Mark 14, we learn that the chief priests and the whole council, they were, fi- they were looking for people who could give testimony against Jesus so they could kill him, and they couldn't find anyone. All they could find were people who would tell lies. But the people who were telling lies, their lies didn't match up. Their, their lies were contradicting. Their testimony did not agree. And the whole time, Jesus is just standing there, and he's remaining silent. In the end of Mark 14, Caiaphas says to Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So this trial as corrupt as it was, was also incredibly inept. They couldn't convict Jesus. In the end, Jesus, by his own witness, had to convict himself. So he says, I am the Messiah. And what happens is Caiaphas, the high priest, yells out blasphemy, that a man would claim to be God, tears his robe, and then they tie Jesus up, they blindfold Jesus, they begin to hit him, and they begin to spit on him. Now, what is their problem with Jesus? 
Why are they rejecting Jesus? There's three reasons. Number one, they're rejecting Jesus because he was a threat to their power. See, they were the Jewish religious leaders, and they had power over the people. They had control over the people, but people were starting to follow Jesus, starting to listen to Jesus, and not them. And so they felt like their power was being taken away from them. Number two, Jesus did not fit their expectations of a Messiah. I mean, they were eagerly awaiting Messiah, but not someone who looked like Jesus, acted like Jesus, and said the things that Jesus said. And number three, the other reason they had a problem with him was because Jesus had a way of exposing the cracks in their character, the flaws in who they were. He showed them to be frauds. Now, by the way, let's pause for a second. Those are still the main problems that people have with Jesus. Number one, he's a threat to our power. If Jesus is Lord, that means you're not Lord. If Jesus is in control, that means you're not in control. If Jesus is who he says he is, then that means we owe him our entire lives. And that's a threat to our power and a threat to our sense of control. And so sometimes people reject Jesus for that. The other reason is that sometimes Jesus doesn't fit our expectations or life doesn't fit our expectations. And so we assume Jesus must not be as good as everybody says he is. And so we reject him. And then the third reason why people reject Jesus, same as the Pharisees and Sadducees is, if you really get to see Jesus, it begins to expose the things in you that aren't so great. The cracks in your character, the flaws in your life. And we don't want to see that, so we reject him. So after this trial, the religious leaders have one major problem still that they have to overcome, and it's this. Jesus' claim to be a Messiah was a religious issue. It wasn't an issue that the Roman government was going to care about. They didn't care about some Jewish person claiming to be a Messiah. That was entirely a sort of, that's your problem sort of deal. So here's what the Sanhedrin did. They sort of twisted and tweaked the charge, and they charged him with claiming to be king, which was a heinous offense in the Roman Empire. It was treason. And then we read this in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So here they are, sort of put their heads together. What are we going to do? They bind Jesus, they lead him away, and they deliver him over to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor. Now, the reason why they bring him to Pilate the next morning is because, number one, according to Jewish law, they were not allowed to convict a criminal at night, which they just did. That's why the trial was such a farce. They were not legally allowed to have a trial in the middle of the night, and they had one. So they're like, well, we better bring him out in the morning. But the other reason why they brought him to Pilate, and this is the, most, the more significant reason, is that the Jewish Sanhedrin, as much power as they had, there was one limitation. They could not convict a person to death. They didn't have that sort of power. The only person who could do that was the Roman governor, and his name was Pilate. And that's what they wanted was for Jesus to die. And so in verse 2, Pilate meets him, and Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Here's Jesus being accused of all sorts of things that are untrue. Now, how do you respond? How do I respond when someone brings a false accusation against us? What do we do? Oh, we're, we're really quick to set the record straight. We're really fast to sort of say, no, no, that's not what happened at all. And here Jesus being, terrible lies are being told about him, and he's just remaining there silent. And we lead, this leads us to the second rejection. He's rejected by the Sanhedrin, but secondly in the story, he's rejected by Pilate. Now what do we know about Pilate? 
Um, there's actually historical data about this man because Pilate was a real historical figure. I mean, everybody in this story really lived. This is a true story. So you can go through history and learn about Pilate. His name was, they called him Pontius Pilate. And what we know about Pontius Pilate, not just from the Bible, but from other historical documents is this. He was not a great man at all. He was a bit of a weak man and he lusted for celebrity and status. That was his dream. And he put his career before everything, including people and principle. Here's an example of a few of the things that I've learned in my studies that Pilate did. He insulted the Jewish people by having his soldiers bring flags bearing images of Caesar into Jerusalem. That caused open rebellion because that big part of the Jewish belief was you can't have imagery of other gods. Secondly, he raided the, the sacred treasury of the temple called Corbin. One time he took money out of the Jewish temple, out of their treasury, to pay for an aqueduct that they were building. And when the Jewish people objected, they were beaten by soldiers. And then Pilate eventually, years later, loses his job because he orders his cavalry to attack some people who were assembled at a mountain in a peaceful religious gathering. And there's a fourth century historian named Eubius, or Eusebius who records that From that point on, Pilate's life went so bad that he ended up taking his own life. So this is the man that rejects Jesus. He has this history of bad decision-making. He's been warned by Rome about his heavy-handedness. They're basically saying, you're a bully, and the way you're leading is causing more trouble for us than it's worth. And so when the Sanhedrin bring Jesus, you you gotta understand what's happening. Pilate sees this insurrection happening during the Passover. At the Passover feast, the the, the population of Jews was five to seven times greater than at any other time during the year. So you you have this Jerusalem just packed full of Jewish people. You have the leaders of the Jewish people coming to Pilate and saying, you gotta do something about him during the Passover feast. And so they say, you know, Pilate in his head is thinking, I can't have an insurrection. This is bad for me. So he wants nothing to do with Jesus. And what he does is he passes Jesus to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate sees Jesus for what he really is. He's an innocent victim. Pilate realizes Jesus is not this revolutionary who's, who's a danger. He's a victim of envy. And he tells them, I find nothing wrong with Jesus. Well, you know how that goes over. And then Pilate has this great idea. He thinks, well, there's a custom at Passover. Every Passover, as the Roman governor, I have the authority to grant amnesty or pardon to one Jewish criminal. And he had in custody a notorious criminal who was a murderer and a bandit and a revolutionary. His name was Barabbas. And Pilate certainly thought to himself, I'll give him a choice, and they'll, they'll set Jesus free. It's kind of like when you're trying to get your kids to eat their vegetables, and you're like, you're going to finish that broccoli, or you're going to, Christmas is canceled, right? And they're like, you're just choosing these like wildly extreme things. You're going to eat those peas or you're going to sleep outside tonight. I, I don't do that. I wouldn't do that. But you're, you're, you're sort of throwing out this like really extreme. And that's what Pilate thought he was doing. He was saying like, we can set little innocent Jesus free or we can set Barabbas free. And Pilate's thinking they're for sure going to say, oh, oh, wow, that's, that's crazy. Set Barabbas free. Crazy. Let's just set Jesus free. But to his surprise, that's not what happens. And we meet the third moment of rejection for Jesus. Here, he's rejected by the crowd. The chief priests had stirred up the crowd. They probably actually had paid off the crowd. That's what most people think. And the crowd yells out, when Pilate says, here's what we can do, here's what the crowd yells out, give us Barabbas. There's an interesting thing I found in my studies. Barabbas is actually two different Greek words, and it means son of, bar means son of. So they would have called Jesus, Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus, son of Joseph. So when they say Barabbas, that's not his first name. In fact, uh, we believe that his first name was also Jesus. So you have Jesus Barabbas, and you have Jesus Bar Joseph. And so Barabbas, Bar means son of, but what does Abba mean? It means father. 
So when they said, give us Barabbas, give us Jesus Barabbas, what they were saying was this in the original language, give us Jesus, the son of the father. And they're asking for Jesus Barabbas, son of the father, when they have Jesus Bar-Joseph, the son of God the father. But Pilate says, what am I going to do with Jesus if I give you Barabbas? And now the crowd is just worked up into a frenzy and they yell, crucify him. Pilate says, why? What, what evil has he done? And they get louder, crucify him. And so Pilate, who's a, who's, a, who's a people pleaser, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he releases Barabbas and he has Jesus scourged and he delivers him to be crucified. Now let's read this. This is a key portion in our time together this morning, beginning in verse 16. It says this. So the soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him, speaking of Jesus, in a purple cloak and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They're mocking him. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, of course, mocking him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. Now, why does that matter? Why does he say the father of Alexander and Rufus? The reason why he says the father of Alexander and Rufus is because the original readers of Mark, Mark was the, most, uh, was the quickest gospel in circulation. They knew Alexander and Rufus. They were still around. So he's giving them a reference point. You guys know Alexander and Rufus. This is their dad. Verse 22, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which is supposed to be like almost like an anesthetic, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, Jesus, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So let me just talk to you for a couple minutes about the scourging and the crucifixion. The scourging was done by what was known as a flagellum whip. And the whip that Jesus would have been beat with consisted of thick leather strips, leather thongs, and they were plated with pieces of bone and lead and maybe glass. And the way that they would whip somebody at this time is they would uh, whip them with it, but then they would drag the whip across their back. And that's what would tear the skin and would expose the bone. Eusebius, uh, that same fourth century martyr or historian, he saw martyrs who were beaten in this way. This is an exact quote from Eusebius. He says they were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and their organs were exposed to sight. Now, Josephus, who's the most famous church historian, he was a first century one, He describes it in similar terms. He says, the flagellum, the beating, left Jesus with bone and cartilage showing. Isaiah prophesied that he would be so marred that he wouldn't even look like a human. And then his brow was pressed down with this mocking crown of thorns, each thorn representing how the curse of sin extended to nature itself. Then covered with the faded purple robe, crimson with blood, and hung dripping from his shoulders. And Jesus was then placed in the center of what would have been a company of four Roman soldiers. He was kind of boxed in. I know when we watch movies and we see pictures, we see Jesus carrying the entire cross. This is not what happened, though. Uh, Jesus carried what was called the patabulum. And the patabulum was the cross beam of the cross. 
So just the middle of the cross. And you might think, well, that makes me feel a little bit better about it. No, the middle of the cross weighed 100 to 150 pounds. And it was placed upon his freshly torn shoulders. So now as Jesus is stumbling along the route to the cross, there's an officer that walked in front of him carrying a wooden placard that was whitened with chalk. chalk. And what they would do is they would write the crime on the placard so that everybody knew what this person was guilty of. And that's where they wrote the words, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The Jewish people had a fit because they said, no, 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 change it. Change it to Jesus of Nazareth claims to be the King of the Jews. And that's when Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And here's something I learned that when they led somebody to the cross, they would lead them on the longest route possible, a serpentine-style route through the community. Why? So that people would see. It was like a lesson to everyone. So that proper fear would be bestowed throughout the city to deter them from doing the same crime. Here's what we know about crucifixion. Crucifixion was the lowest form of degradation and the highest form of execution. Cultured Gentiles uh, so despised crucifixion that they would not even say the word cross. Within a few hundred years, the Roman Empire outlawed crucifixion as a form of execution because it was so extreme. Crucifixion nails were driven through the wrists, and one nail was driven through both feet. And death was not quick. It was slow, and it was painful. The March 21st, 1986 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association carries the most complete medical review of Christ's crucifixion that's ever been published in a medical journal. In it, the authors detail the pain endured by the weight of the body hanging from nails that were damaging the medial nerves and tear at the tarsals, the respiratory torture, the cramping, the pleural effusions, concluding simply this, death by crucifixion was in every sense of the word excruciating. So Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's been rejected by the Jewish religious establishment. He's been rejected by the Roman politicians. He's been rejected by a riled up crowd. His closest friends are nowhere to be found. And now he's surrounded by thieves and mockers and haters who, according to Matthew, were walking by and saying things like, he saved others, he can't save himself, not realizing the irony of that statement, that the only way he could truly save others was to not save himself. And at this point in the story, Jesus finds acceptance from, from really three sources, and the first two are very unexpected. So the first one is this, Jesus is accepted by a thief. Now, you, if you know the story, you know he's rejected by one, and he's accepted by the other, Right? He's hanging between two thieves. And the term thief is kind of a, an easy let off for these two guys. They didn't crucify people for petty larceny or little. These guys were serious, lifelong criminals. That's why they were dying on the crosses. And one of the criminals on Jesus yells at, yells at him, according to Luke, are you not Christ? Save yourself and save us. Again, the irony of it, that he is saving them. And then the other one says, are you a fool? We deserve to die for our crimes. This man is innocent. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him in verse 43 of Luke 23, truly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Even as Jesus is dying, he knows why he is dying. Even as he's giving his life, he's loving people. And in this scene, we have a microcosm of how Jesus loved people to the very end. There's two things we have to notice when we look at the thief. Number one, this. Here's what I love about this story. It, it, it settles for us this truth. There's no such thing as a lost cause. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a lost cause. Can you imagine being that criminal that woke up that morning? What was he thinking? He woke up that morning knowing that he was going to be crucified, and he's thinking, this is it. Last day of my life, 
I've wasted my life. My family is ashamed of me. They're nowhere to be found. I have no hope. The only thing left for me to do is to die. No clue that his eternity was going to be turned upside down by one encounter with our dying Savior. And here's what it means for us this morning. It's never too late for you. And it's never too late for the people that you love and the people that you're praying for. Jesus will love you and he will pursue you until your final breath. And he'll do the same for your children and for your grandchildren and for your neighbors and for your coworkers. There is no such thing. If this story is true, and I believe it is, then that means there's no such thing as a lost cause. It doesn't exist. But here's the other thing that this story convinces us of. There's no such thing as a lost cause, but also there's no such thing as working your way in. Hold on, think about this. The criminal, all he does is he looks at Jesus as he's dying and says, will you remember me today? And, the, and, and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, those of us that sort of have this internal sense of justice and we think about this life of crime that this man has led, we think, what? Like, that's it? It's that simple? It's that easy? He's about to die. Why is he going to paradise? He's not gonna get an opportunity to sort of right his wrongs He's not going to have an opportunity to rehabilitate himself and fix himself and make himself impressive. He's not going to be able to contribute to society. There's no time left to prove his worth. There's no time left to earn his way in. And here's the truth. That's the heart of the gospel. You can't prove yourself. You can't earn your way in. There's no such thing as working your way in. Jesus, when he yells out in a few moments later, it is finished, it means not, it means not that he himself was finished by his enemies. It means that he finished his mission, his work. Here's the best interpretation of what he said when he said it is finished. It has been and it forever will be finished. And by the way, that Greek word for finished was the exact same word that the high priest would say in the temple the moment they finished slaughtering the Passover lambs. It's finished. And Jesus here yells out, it's finished. And what that means is that his work is, is, is sufficient for you. It's enough for you. It's enough for me. We can't save ourselves through our works. We are saved by faith in Jesus alone. The second moment of acceptance comes from maybe an even more unexpected source. He's accepted by a centurion, a Roman centurion who knew nothing about Jesus when this day began. Verse 33, let's read it. It says this, When the sixth hour had come, this is when the sun is at its highest point. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Supernatural darkness. This is not an eclipse. The Passover always happens during a full moon. Eclipses never happen when there's a full moon. This is not an eclipse. This is a supernatural event. For three hours, there's darkness. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22, and some believe he would have quoted the entirety of Psalm 22. Now, Jesus' death is dramatically emphasized by darkness that engulfs the cross. Why darkness? Well, number one, darkness was a sign of mourning. According to the prophet Amos, this is a sign of mourning that all of earth and creation is mourning. But also, here's the most important one, darkness signified the curse of God. Now, do you remember with the Old Testament, uh, the, the 10 plagues? What was the plague before the last one? Before the, the, the plague of the death of the firstborn son with the Passover lamb, what was the ninth plague? It was the plague of darkness. Darkness precedes the death of the lamb. And same here, this signifies the curse of God. And this, don't miss this this morning, this takes us to the very center of what's happening. Because in those three hours, sin, shame, sickness, selfishness, all of our sin was poured upon Jesus. Christ for those three hours until he himself became sin. He became our sin, my sin, your sin, 
everyone's sin. And one of the commentators says it this way, because Jesus became sin for us, he had to undergo the cosmic trauma of separation from God, who is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. In the dark of the cross's midday night, Jesus was alone. The separation was not just felt, it was real. Now, the ontological unity of the Trinity was not broken because the Trinity is eternal and forever. The Trinity itself was not broken, but, but, don't miss this, the separation of the Son from the Father and Spirit was indeed fact. And so this was possible because of the authenticity of the incarnation. Let me simplify that. Because Jesus really became man, he could experience the separation from the Father. God's holy nature demanded separation as the Son became sin. And then let's read this in verse 37. It says that Jesus uttered a loud cry. This is when he yelled, it's finished. And he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. A centurion, this centurion was assigned to stand close to Jesus the entire time so that uh, no foul play took place. He was there when Jesus was uh, uh, beat, whipped. He, he watched Jesus walk the path of the cross. He supervised Jesus being nailed to the patabulum and then lifted up on the cross. He'd seen Jesus minister to the thief. He'd seen Jesus care for his mother He'd heard everything Jesus had said. He'd seen the midday sun become dark. And finally, the centurion sees Jesus' explosive, triumphant death. And he exclaims, truly, this was the Son of God. He sees him. And what we learn from the centurion is this. Jesus' death, when it's carefully considered, it reveals who he is. And it reveals what he's done. Now, what do we see when we look at Jesus' death? And we're going to close in a couple minutes. We see two seemingly contradictory truths, and they're this. On one hand, when we look at his death, we see two things that seem to be opposite, but they're the same. Uh, they work together. On one hand, we see that he's just like us. He tasted death. But on the other hand, we see he's nothing like us. So he's just like you and me. The Bible says that he experienced the fullness of humanity. He tasted it all. He got the full experience. You know, what's the last thing that every human, human being will experience on this earth? It's death. And Jesus didn't, he didn't duck out before that. He endured it. He went through the entire human experience, including death. And so he's just like us. He's gonna, he endured what we endured. He was, he was tempted like you and I have been tempted. He suffered. He got sick. He got sad. His heart was broken. He suffered loss. And eventually, finally, he tastes death. He's just like us. But then when we look at him dying, we realize this. He's nothing like us. Look at how he died. Innocent man. None of us will really die completely innocent of what we've done. He died praying for his enemies. He died caring for people around him. He's nothing like us. And then the last acceptance we see this morning is this. And this is the most important one. And this is the one that changes the story and changes your story. Jesus was accepted by God. Did you notice that little verse that we read, verse 38? It said, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Well, what does that mean? The curtain represented a separation between man and God. 
And on one side of the curtain in the temple was called the Holy of Holies. And only one time a year could the priest, the high priest, go in to offer an offering for the sins of the people. But only one time a year because the curtain was saying, on that side there's a holy God, on this side is a sinful people. You cannot get through the curtain. The curtain is actually here for your protection. Because if you get in front of a holy God, it's not gonna go well for you. But the moment Jesus dies, the curtain tears in half symbolizing two things. Obviously, the most obvious one is this. It symbolizes that now there's a way to God. There's access to God. People can approach a holy God. But did you notice how it tore? It tore from top to bottom, which means that God did this. No man could do this. No human could do this. God tore it from top to bottom, signifying that no man could do what only God can do. And what it means is that when that, when that uh, thing tore, what it meant was that the Father had accepted When the curtain tore, the father had accepted what Jesus had done. He accepted the life of Jesus, the perfect substitutionary life of Jesus. He accepted the death of Jesus on your behalf because Jesus died as you. He died for you and his sacrifice is enough. And here's what the gospel tells us, that the very thing that God required of you, he provided for you. And when you look at the cross this week, keep that in mind. What God required from me, a perfect life, a sinless life, I can't provide it. So, a death that can pay the price for my sins. I can't provide it. What God required of you, he provided for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now what that means is in a story of acceptance and rejection, rejection and acceptance, guess what's true for you? You can be accepted. Accepted by the Father. Now this week, I want to finish this way. This week as I was preparing for this message, I found myself listening to this song by Hillsong over and over called Crowns. I want to read to you uh, the lyrics, and then we're going to listen, and then we're going to pray. Here's the first verse. It says this. There is a hill I cherish where stood a precious tree, the emblem of salvation, the gift of Calvary. How is it I should profit while he is crucified? Yet as his life was taken, so I was granted mine. And the Course says this, I love this. My wealth is in the cross. There's nothing more I want than just to know his love. My heart is set on Christ, and I will count all else as loss. The greatest of my crowns mean nothing to me now, for I counted up the cost, and all my wealth is in the cross. Let's watch the first verse and the first course of this together. <laughs> 